Bienvenidos. Welcome to Adelante Leadership, a bilingual podcast in English and Spanish for a strong and resilient Latina community. Changing the narrative by sharing our stories, here and now. Together, we will share knowledge and information to help motivate the Latina community members to step into their leadership with hearts and minds and to use our diversity to influence on a positive change. Thank you for tuning in today. And now, here are your hosts, Tania and Peter. Bienvenidos, bienvenides to Adelante Leadership. I'm proud to be your co-host, Tania Hino. Welcome to Stepping into Latin A Leadership. I'm proud to be your co-host, Peter Block Garcia. Welcome to our episode number one, opening up with Luis Ortega, a young leader and founder of Storytellers for Change. And he shares the importance of reminding ourselves from where you come and the power of your own story. Peter's going to tell us a little bit about Luis Ortega. Luis Ortega is a multidisciplinary storyteller, educator, facilitator, and the founder and director of Storytellers for Change. Over the last 14 years, Luis has worked with youth, educators, and organizations to co-design storytelling strategies projects and programs to foster empathy, inclusion, and equity across communities. His work and projects have been featured at the Harvard DACA seminar, HBO's Where Do You Exist podcast, the Kaufman Foundation Disruptor Speaker Series, and the Art Place America Summit. Most recently, Luis was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Foundation's Community Leader Network Fellow and has curated the 100 Changemakers Project at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Discovery Center. Luis, welcome to Adelante Leadership. Bienvenido. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Luis, uh, Tanya and I have known you for many years already, and I still wonder, though, if you wouldn't mind sharing your story for listeners of this episode. Yeah, certainly I can do that. And first, just Peter, Tanya, thank you for not only inviting me, but really creating this space for these conversations. I, I really appreciate both of you for doing that. So for your listeners, uh, my name is Luis Osvaldo Ortega Sanchez, but as you already heard, uh, I go by Luis as, as Peter and, and Tanya call me. And I was born and raised in Tenochtitlan, Uh, that's Mexico City. I am the son of Gaines Sanchez and Rogelio Ortega and the grandson of Rosaura Martinez Rios and Catona Saldaña. And I come from a family of educators. My mom and dad are educators. My grandmothers were educators. And I have seven sisters and all of them are educators. And really, I start with, with that context because I grew up in a household that centered not just education, the institution, but education as a holistic human practice that was tied with our liberation. So our specific approach to education within my family has always been rooted on uh, the teachings of Paulo Freire and, and Bell Hooks, right? So pedagogy and education as a practice of freedom. Uh, it was not rare to have conversations about social justice and activism and how we could find and seek uh, liberation and, and justice through, through learning. Um, and, 
you know, in, in some ways, even though my, my parents uh, did separate when I was really young, I was five years old, um, I, I did receive the same message uh, from, from both my mom and my, and my dad and both of my grandmothers who couldn't be more different in terms of how they grew up. Uh, one of them grew up in a very urban context. She was an artist. Uh, she came from a, a more um, you know, middle-class affluent family uh, and more really spent a lot of time in more intellectual circles. Uh, my grandmother from my dad's side of the family came from one of the poorest uh, states in, in Mexico, the state of Guerrero. She was a rural educator, uh, was one of the first persons in her entire family's history to learn how to read and write, uh, and, and really came from, from, from very little in terms of uh, financial means and resources. Uh, but both of them shared uh, one thing in common, which was, well, one, um, both of them always made me feel very loved, and, and I believe that love still uh, lives within me and shines through me. But both of them uh, taught me early on that within the context of education, one of the most powerful tools that we can have as educators is our stories. And part of the story that, that you're asking for, Peter, I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll skip a, a few years here because I just want to contextualize who I come from, right, in terms of my family. My mom, as a single parent and an educator, uh, did struggle to make ends meet, uh, like many other immigrant families. And, and for context, you know, Mexico went through some really difficult economic times in the 90s. You could argue Mexico has always, in one way or another, been going through a difficult time, especially for those who um, are kept away from uh, economic opportunity, uh, educational opportunity. And, and in some ways, even though we did have some access to education, uh, economic opportunity was not coming our way. And we had some family uh, living in uh, Seattle, Washington, uh, the Warmish Coast Salish land, my mother's uh, older sister. Uh, moved here uh, in the 80s, and actually my grandmother's sister also had moved here earlier, and uh, they, they had been living here for some time, and my mom decided, uh, let's give it a try. So, so we did, and I arrived in uh, this country, uh, in, in this beautiful place uh, called Washington State in uh, 2001, uh, four weeks after 9-11. Even though it was a it, it was, and you could always argue that it's always been difficult to be an immigrant in this country. I think post 9-11, there was a particular intensity yeah. around being a brown-skinned immigrant in, this, in yeah. this country and having an accent and just not knowing the language, you know, all, all, all of those things that are yeah. shared by so many immigrants. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, came here um, and I, I just fell in love with uh, with this beautiful land of, of the Duwamish and the Coast Salish people. I mean, just the Salish Sea, uh, Mount Tahoma, right? Mount, Mount Rainier, some, some people may know it by. Uh, just everything, the rain, uh, just felt so cleansing to me. I mean, I, I, I am one of those persons that loves the rain. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> me too. Thank you. Me too. I love the clouds, the rain. Yeah. In Mexico, in Mexico, we always pray for rain. And so when we moved to Seattle, we're like, oh my gosh, rain. rain. Your prayer was answered. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. 
my younger sisters, not so much. Uh, they, they, I, I think they struggle a lot, the change of culture, the change of climate, uh, but I loved it. Um, and, and I think it, it, it did help me to navigate what was most difficult, which was the institution of education going back to um, just overall my earlier reflections around education, because I, I found I attended Russell High School. For context, it's a public school, but it's in North Seattle, uh, which is generally understood to be a more, more affluent area of Seattle. I, I was one of the very few uh, Latinx students in, in, in the school, and uh, overall, one of the few persons of color uh, in, in the school. And yeah, to say that I that there was not a cultural responsive pedagogy embedded in, in that school uh, would, would be an, an understatement. Nevertheless, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities I had there educationally. I What I often tell people is that I thrived academically. Uh, I had a 3.9 GPA. I, I, was, I had a very clear understanding for why we were here in terms of educational opportunities and the sacrifices that my mom had made to give me and my sisters this opportunity. So I, I did what I had to do in school. So I was academically successful, but socio-emotionally, I was devastated. I was impoverished. I suffered a great deal of trauma in terms of my identity. I had never perceived my brownness as something more deficit-oriented than the time I spent at that school. Oh. And it was not just the culture of... Uh, Roosevelt High School, I, I think, is, is the larger uh, weight that you feel as soon as you arrive in this country in terms of how we are racialized. And uh, add on top of that, my immigration status, uh, that, that just really became a very difficult moment for me, but also pivotal because in, in terms of my story, and, and I'll close here because I could keep going for a while, and, and I know that there's other questions, but I, I, this is sort of the, the, if you will, the origin story for why I do what I do today, is when I came out to my high school counselor as an undocumented student, I'm a senior in high school, I, I know I want to pursue college, I just have no idea what that pathway looks like for someone with my immigration mm -hmm. status. So I reached out to my counselor, someone that had been guiding me yeah. and, and supporting, rooting for me, really, yeah. as someone that was, uh, you know, I had been in the country for like three and a half years and I was doing very well academically. Uh, to use her language, I was one of the good ones, uh, which at the time I oh. took as a compliment. Oh. Oh. Um, so, you know, I go, I, I, I tell her uh, I'm undocumented and to be, very clear, uh, I actually said I'm illegal because that was the oh. language that I that I used at the time. It's the language that's still used by many. And it's the language that, although there's been some evolution in, in media outlets yeah. at the time, yeah. uh, it, it was definitely what was being used in all kinds of publications, right? The New York Times and yeah. it's the Times, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it is a word that I used to describe myself too. I, I told my counselor I'm illegal. I want to go to college and, and I need help. Yeah. And my counselor kicked me out of her office. And Whoa. she told me that someone like me uh, doesn't go to college. Oh. And to me, already building up on all that previous trauma that I described, this moment just perfectly encapsulated what, what I had been feeling uh, that entire time. But it, yeah. it's only all these unspoken things. All the yeah. microaggressions. Yes. Yeah, no, and it turned into a macro. There, <laughs> like there, it just exploded no, well, right there and then. There are microaggressions that, 
that you know you're feeling by all, a lot of people and they become microaggressions uh, uh, when this person tells you you're not going to college. People like you don't go to college mm-hmm. or quote unquote, you're one of the good ones. And they say those are microaggressions, but they're not. They're, they're big aggressions and they're well-intended. It's amazing what you're saying. That's why we're doing this. Don't you think, Peter? What an honor to have you. What an honor to start hearing your story from the beginning, from your culture, from Mexico. And that's, this is why we are calling this podcast Adelante Leadership. It is so important to tell our stories and what you just told us. It will identify a lot of people and it's and uh, changing the narrative because the story you're telling, I identify completely. I was, was in Roosevelt High School, felt like that as well. I was one of the good ones. And the way they make you feel when I come to the counselor, they will, Tanya, is your family abusing you? I said, oh, well, because I help my family doesn't mean they're abusing me. Or if I go, I decided I want to go metal chap in Roosevelt High School. They will, they, they call me in and say, have you been drinking? I said, why would I want to be drinking? <laughs> what are you talking about? What kind of question is this? I totally understand. I was also undocumented. They didn't have documents and nobody was there to raise people like us or center us because it was not the culture. How did you deal with those traumatic experiences or more effectively step into leadership? And then, and and why is it important for people to overcome their trauma or address their trauma, traumatic experiences? So I think I can, I can answer that through what I would say are three different lenses. The first one is that in the particular moment, as I was experiencing, whether it was housing insecurity uh, or, um, you know, just being, my humanity pretty much being threatened, dismissed uh, by, by someone that you trust, essentially in the context of an institution, like a counselor, a teacher, so on and so forth. Um, in that moment itself, I don't know that I was dealing with it. I mean, I think I... I had some coping mechanisms because of my upbringing, like um, without, and this is now I'm answering through a second lens now, which is the lens of awareness, sort of looking back at the experience and saying, Mm -hmm. oh, like in that moment, I don't think I was actually doing anything to deal with that uh, extreme pain or numbness, right? Um, That that sense of fight or flight or freeze or faint. but now I'm realizing there, there were, in fact, a few things that, uh, that I was taught as, as a kid that helped me to self-suit, that helped me to uh, take care of myself. And it's, it's, it's things as simple as, honestly, um, my grandmother's voice singing Sana Sana Colita de Rana to immediately wanting to go for a walk. Uh, my grandmother was like a very avid walker. Like every single morning, she would just go for a walk, go for a walk, go for a walk. And I didn't do it as a kid, but it's something yeah. that was in my mind. And when I was in high school, I would walk a great deal, uh, huh. mostly because I didn't have a car, but uh-huh. also because I found it to be a very peaceful time of my day. Uh, so I would walk to school. I would walk back home from school instead of taking the yellow bus. And we lived pretty close by. It wasn't like, but it was maybe like two miles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's still pretty good walk. So usually when I would experience something uh, very difficult, a walk would immediately soothe me and calm me. Running also yeah. became eventually something that helped me. Uh, and drawing. And I come from a very 
artistic family in the in my mom's side of the family, especially who where I grew up, painting, photography, drawing. So there's I have a <laughs> I have my own archive of, of, of all my drawing and, and work from that. And it's actually, you know, really interesting. I don't, I do, I, I still draw and I still do some photography today, but I'm realizing like, as I'm looking back, some of the most, I've done my most artistic work in my times of more intensive trauma, uh, because I feel like that's been for me a place of expression to, to just cope. So I think that was something that was there that helped me in those moments without me necessarily knowing that that's what was happening. So I think, and, and lastly, the third lens is sort of addressing sort of your, your final question, like why, why is it important for us to address this? Fundamentally, I think the, the, the biggest issue uh, when we experience hurt, when we experience trauma, uh, and I'm thinking about this now through the context of, of, of storytelling, is that if we do not address those harms and hurts from our past, we may uh, unknowingly pass them along. And, and this can be like a, like a, a very unconscious process, right? Very unconsciously, yeah. uh, I learned a lesson, right? The, the, I, I'm going to frame it as the wrong lesson, although I'm not a huge fan of framing things as always necessarily right or wrong. But I learned, you know, the wrong lesson about a traumatic experience. It somehow gets embedded into my story. And then it gets passed over uh, as I, you know, continue to behave the way I show up in the world, right, based on that experience. But let, let, let me give you maybe like a, a, another example like that I think is more specific. So when I will tell my story at the beginning, I oftentimes tell people, and I was just having a conversation with, with a friend about this, I often tell people that my storytelling as, as an advocate was really fundamentally born in a place of anger. I will tell my story yeah. with an angry tone uh, yeah. because there was, in fact, a lot of anger and pain in uh -huh. that particular place. But I had a moment of realization. Uh, uh, this was, I was probably already four years into telling my story a great deal. And I showed up this one time. And usually I was very used to going and speaking with students, uh, Latinx students, immigrant students, BIPOC students, uh, Latinx families. And with that audience, my anger uh, still came with love. If that makes any sense. Like I was there for like out of love for my community. Mm -hmm. And even though there was anger in my voice, I found empathy in the audience in such a mm -hmm. way where like the audience could be angry with me. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. And I would not yet do a lot of engagement and work with uh, educators. And primarily, right, when you're thinking about educators, you're mostly thinking essentially about, racially speaking, it's mostly like white educators, yeah, right, yeah. That, that we have in our schools, in our public yeah. schools. So I remember one occasion I was invited, to, first time I was ever invited to go speak to a group of educators. And sure enough, uh, I, I show up and there's a few BIPOC educators in, in the space, but like, I, I could not tell you exactly how many, but very very few, a couple that yeah. I saw. But mostly like I'm talking in that moment when I'm perceiving to be uh, just a white audience yeah. of, of teachers. And I, as soon as I go into that space, I felt immediately triggered oh. because so much of my story is about what I perceive to be harm that I received from the education system based on a white supremacy yeah. lens. Now, of course, like these people that are in front of me are not necessarily to blame, right? Like they, they, there's, they're, they're not the people that inflicted pain on me, but I was immediately triggered by just mm -hmm. being in the space. And I found myself 
delivering probably the most angry speech that I've uh-huh. that I've ever remembered delivering to the point. And, and I mean, and at this point, like I was I was very articulate. I knew exactly what I was saying and how to say it. Uh-huh. And I was almost aiming to say it in such a way that it would hurt. Uh-huh. Like, I wanted my audience to hurt with me. And I recall this teacher just not just not being able to like take it and was just crying and just left. The, the space because I was essentially like there was essentially these moments like you know throughout high school educators like you never saw me do you see me now yeah and in that moment this educator just gets up crying and, and and just walks out and everyone else is just there like it's just complete silence everybody looks pretty shook and it felt terrible it did not feel good I was not good it took me like a, a good amount of time to recover from that experience my audience was not good uh, the, 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 I was not creating community. I was there was no restorative process. There was no 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 circle of understanding for us to actually understand what what happened. It was just mm-hmm. anger beginning anger and hurt beginning hurt. And and I didn't know how to move away from that at the moment, but I knew that's not what I want. You know, just think about that experience started getting me thinking like, well, what lessons are young people learning from my story when all I show them is, yes, uh, agency, but from a place of anger and hurt and also mm-hmm. telling a story that I realized it's actually a story that I've been telling and retelling and retelling, and it's in fact harming me. I, I have not yet learned how to tell this story in such a way that heals me. And, and I believe that we can revisit our stories, even those traumatic stories in ways that can cause us more harm or on ways that can restore us and heal us and nourish us and then bring that healing and nourishment to our communities. And I had not figured out how to do the latter just yet. Wow, Luis, thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing this story of anger and how we need to heal and the power of healing and changing the narrative to compassion. I am in awe. I, I, I totally am relating to your story, boy. It's just, it's just hitting me <clears throat> in a way that, um, because, but, but also like, cause I think we go through our lives in our work, not consciously aware of our own anger at times. Mm-hmm. And it was only recently a very unexpected passing of a fan, a very dear family member mm-hmm. was not just important to me and my wife, but to my kids. Um, and it was totally just blew us out of the water, right? It totally like this was back in September. Mm-hmm. And um, and I realized at one point when we, you know, so we were doing the the memorial services and the, the all the the stuff related to it, and inviting friends and extended family, etc. And I realized at one point I'm angry that she left. Mm-hmm. I still am. Yeah. And your story is reminding me that I think I've got other anger issues too, that we go through our lives ignoring them, mm-hmm. right? And it is so important for us, but how do you, in that instance, your story told a moment where you had that epiphany, but how do you have any suggestions of how to not, for the rest of us, not to wait until we have that experience that you had to become more conscious of our anger and, and deal with it. Yeah. Well, first, I, I, I feel so much of, of what you're saying. And I think what, what I found uh, to be true over the years about what can help us to, to have th- that intentional space of, of reflection, there, there's, there's essentially like, I think like sort of these four cycles of interconnected learning that there's part of the frameworks that we use when, when we are facilitating our storytelling work. And on one side, we have, you know, self-reflection and we have exploring 
uh, our lived experience through an appreciative lens of precious knowledge. We have integration integration of the knowledge into our into action, which is the will to act, and then you have a transformation. Right? What does it mean to to transform ourselves? Yeah. But what I understand about this cycle of learning is that is not an individual practice. It's fundamentally a relational and community practice. Uh-huh. So what's what's going to help us ensure that is not a, a five year ten year journey before we suddenly realize and sometimes it it, it, do, it does take that long but i but i think what can help with that and i sort of i think the short answer is is community intentional community spaces where we can gather to reflect uh-huh. and to share and this is why as leaders this is as in my context as an educator as a facilitator part of our responsibility one is to seek those spaces where we ourselves can process our own experiences, our own thinking, where we can reflect, where we can explore that knowledge, where we can integrate it, where we can make the lessons. And from there, learn when we have to make amends, learn when we have to, uh, you know, engage in restorative processes, learn learn how we can then bring that to to others. But also, it's not only seeking those spaces for ourselves, it's how do we intentionally create those spaces for the people that we work with. Depending on on, on your stage of life, this is going to look different, right? If, If you are a student, then... Our educators, our schools need to be intentionally creating spaces mm-hmm. so that young people can process what's happening in the world. Think, I mean, right. look at look at what's unfolding yeah. right now in public schools and students are walking out. Yeah. Why are they walking yeah. out? Because the school is not responsibly creating, responding one to their needs, their basic needs, but two, is not even creating a space to authentically listen to them, right? So yeah. Create the space and, and seek that space. And, and, and I think sometimes that doesn't feel very accessible. Gather, create your own community of practice. Gather yeah. one, two people um, that, that you trust, that you want to be in community with, and just begin to engage in the process of, of reflecting. Um, yeah. I think that's what's served me well over the years. And, and I also know that the times when I've distanced myself a little bit more, say, from, from, from spaces like that, um, and, and I think this is an important point, to, to not confuse, just because you're facilitating that space for others, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're getting the benefit of the space, right? So it's different. You need to be in spaces where you, as the leader, are not the leader leading the conversation because you need to process your own things without yeah. feeling that sense of like, oh, I have to have the answers here. I need to guide people. It's, it's not only okay, it's necessary for us to step back. Uh-huh. And allow ourselves to process things, which is different from when you do take the role of saying, okay, I'm going to bring and create this space for others so that I can be in community with others. That's that's different. I, I feel like in my in my work, I get to do a lot of the latter, right? I'm continuously thinking about designing, creating, facilitating. And I usually have a sense of awareness now when, when like, I'm beginning to feel like a little empty in that side of like, oh, there's uh-huh. things that I've been building up that yeah. I need process uh, that I need to discuss and I need to think about. And for that, you know, I have every Tuesday night, I meet with a friend. We've been doing that for about three years now. Yeah. And that's like our check-in. You know, we sometimes things happen in life. We cannot meet. That's fine. Right. Right. Um, But in three years, I mean, I, I could probably count with like one hand, how many times we've missed that meeting. Yeah. Um, and one out of a few different things that have helped me yeah. uh, to continuously be in that place of processing, thinking, reflecting, integrating, transforming. Wow. <sighs> Luis and Peter, 
It gives me chills and it has a say in Mexico. Me pone mi piel de gallina. To hear you both being vulnerable and changing the narrative for men to show emotions the vulnerability of crying, accepting our anger, and you put accepting your anger and working through it, it is powerful in itself. Thank you both for showing that to our audience. And that is not about what we've been hearing. Men don't cry. It is important to cry. It's important to, to deal with anger. It's important to deal with all this hurt that we go through. This is powerful. This is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. I know that you mentioned all your culture and identity and confusion because of the school and the, and the impact that this country has on culture and where they want to put you in boxes. Obviously, they don't uh, appreciate our skin color, our language, el español, la comida. But what are your core values that has kept you besides your identity and being proud of it? What are some core values, valores de tu cultura keeps you with that light? And I would add to that, Tanya, the, the, so what, how did you overcome that kind of opposition? Those values probably were part of that in your part of that story part. Yes, and, and not at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, because, so to, to name the values specifically, I, there's a few. The, the, the ones that come to mind right now specifically are uh, reciprocity and, and joy. And for me, reciprocity is, is the foundational core principle, value, mindset, uh, approach that I take uh, as, as a leader, as a storyteller, as an artist, as an educator, right? It's just this fundamental belief in our interconnectedness with each other. Right. As James Baldwin once put it, like we belong with each other. And each other is inclusive of the land, is inclusive of the skies, is inclusive of my counselor. So reciprocity is how I found uh, forgiveness for my counselor and empathy for my counselor. Reciprocity is how I found forgiveness for myself, for the language I used to hurt myself. And understanding that that language uh, came from somewhere, right? Uh, it, it was just not. It didn't just uh, manifest suddenly out of nowhere, right? That, that there are cycles of harm that have been happening for a long time and that that harm, uh, maybe I, there are those of us who call marginalized identities that uh, are, are really receiving the disproportionate burden of that harm, but ultimately it's harm to all of us, right? And, and I think that understanding that it is a story, you know, like so much of what Tanya was just describing, right? Like, all of these boxes, all of these microaggressions, right? All of them have a story attached to it. And, and what I, I'm, I'm giving you pretty much what I learned after like six years of intense reflection after that incident with my counselor. But really what I came to understand is that there, there is a story that my counselor was told. And before mm -hmm. my counselor, somebody else told a story that told a story that told a story that is at the root of why we dehumanize each other. Uh, right, all the isms, all the phobias. And, and honestly, as an undocumented immigrant, like it's difficult for me not to look at the world and think about borders. And I definitely care a great deal about physical borders and uh, made up, right? But nevertheless, they're there. But I honestly, as a storyteller, I spend so much more time thinking about the invisible borders that are all around us, within us, and how do we dismantle them? And reciprocity is what has helped me to do that uh, within myself and in the context of my relationships. 
uh, I attached that concept of reciprocity very specifically with uh, in Lakesh, uh, which is the Majan precept, you're my other me. Uh, but I, since first coming across that concept through in Lakesh, uh, I found that the concept of reciprocity exists across many different cultures in, in many different uh, traditions and practices. And joy being the second value that I, I, I seek to, to center in my life. And I think specifically for me, this has been, uh, I would say in the last five years, an area of, of personal work that I still struggle with, which which is to understand that so much I centered justice as, as, as essentially not, not just a value, but the, the core of what I wanted to achieve and do. The problem is that I think so much of how I was approaching my work early on was from a place of what, what I call storytelling as a practice of, of, of resistance, but not necessarily as a practice of freedom and definitely not as a, as a form of practice of joy. And I felt there was so much purpose in seeking justice through my storytelling. But inside, to be honest, I was feeling just very defeated. And something about pursuing justice and at the same time feeling burned out, feeling in some ways, I, and I don't, I don't like using the word, but broken. Yeah, it didn't is. didn't feel like it justice is. to me. Of course it um, is. So that's why joy has become that, that important to me and, and to figure out what that is and, and how I pursue that. Uh, how do I reclaim that? It's it's now one of the core values that we've articulated at, at Storytellers for Change. You bring a really good point, Luis. At a moment when these things are happening, even though we do have a lot of self-identity and culture and, and love from our family that keeps us going, and we have that resilience, pain and trauma is real. And it, do, it, it does break us and it makes us spread in in the way we think. And, and, and it's, it's well made that way. And it's been made that way for many, many centuries that they, they would put a thought in our head and it would spread out and then it will keep perpetrating our people. And, and then we do it to ourselves. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't know if you have read the book, uh, My Grandmother's Hands, about, about the trauma and the impact and how many generations back the trauma has stayed in our, in our blood. And, and as you know, Luis, it, in our culture in Mexico, we already suffer a trauma of colonization. And then we come over here and then we suffer another layer of trauma because we don't speak the language and, and then you don't we don't reflect in the people. And that's why it's so powerful with your storytelling and the way you do the storytelling to change the narrative because it's always been that is the people with power, people with money, people with access are the ones that are telling the story. And it was only done before written. And that's why we're doing this podcast too because many of our story of Latine leadership comes from storytelling. And it's not written in paper or on stone. I mean, some of them are, but not a lot of it. And, and that's why we're opening with you because storytelling is powerful and it's been told in many leadership books lead from, uh, from the outside by Stacey Abrams, Cassandra Speaks, the leadership challenge. The leadership books I've been reading is storytelling is power and it's changing the narrative. Mm-hmm. It is impressive. But yes, if you're not broken, we feel broken. 
because it's a trauma. Louise, can you tell us the part of the story of how you started Storytellers for Change and why? And 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 then would love to hear some examples of the, the power of storytelling that you've seen that Tanya's referring to. Yeah, absolutely. So Storytellers for Change has a, a couple different sources of what I, what I would say inspiration that led me to, to really launching the organization and the first time that I've ever experienced storytelling as a practice of freedom at this point you know made my, made my way to the University of Washington I, this is before DACA so this is 2011 at this point I'm known uh, around the state as a very uh, outspoken uh, undocumented uh, activist um, I'm known for saying yes to almost any invitation to go and speak uh, to share my story with students, with families. I mean, I just did not know how to say no. Um, I was, again, driven by a lot of purpose, but inside at the time, also struggling a lot uh, with my own mental health. Um, I was involved in all kinds of different initiatives and programs and doing a lot of community organizing and advocacy work. And I got an invitation from um, uh, a friend to join something called a La Cima Bilingual Leadership Camp. And to be honest, I felt skeptical about it because I felt like my work uh, in Olympia, right, advocating, organizing legislative days, uh, setting up meetings with legislators to advocate for uh, the Washington State Dream Act were way more important than spending a week somewhere in, you know, Northeast Washington, uh, something called Chihuahua Peak. I had never heard of this place before. It's like, what am I going to do for a week in the summer, um, you know, in, in, in this camp while, while I could be over here strategizing, organizing? And yet, uh, you know, the, the, the persons who, ha- who had been inviting me, um, I trusted them deeply. Uh, they were also very involved in these programs. Many of the other young leaders that I was organizing with uh, had gone through this uh, camp as high school students. And I, suddenly thought to myself, you know, there has to be something that so many of the other young people that I admire and that I love organizing with, if they have this in common and all of them are saying it's a, it has been a powerful experience for them, um, I, I should say yes to this. Long story short, I went and immediately, uh, it, something about being in retreat, right? In retreat space and something about being in nature. Um, to be honest, it also helped that at the time I was dealing with um, really uh, housing insecurity. Um, so it, 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 it was also easy to say yes when you do, you're struggling to find food, you, you don't really have a home, and then suddenly you know, well, you know, I get, I get to go teach, I'm going to get paid, and I get food and, 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 and room and board for a week, right? So that's uh, uh, something less to worry about. Um, but specifically the second day of the retreat, the, the, the whole camp is based on really a pedagogical approach that honors both languages, both cultures, Spanish and English. And everything in the camp from the beginning is delivering both languages. There's no hierarchy in the language. Uh, and the commitment from, from the, the founder of, of the camp, Vincent Perez, but as well as the, the entire teaching staff and everyone who has built, been building this space, just really creates an environment where immediately it is palpable that in this space, you don't have to choose. It's set for your, your, your full self, right? Mm-hmm. Where so often the false paradigm that so many of us 
who hold uh, mixed racial identities, uh, immigrant identities, uh, who uh, are fluid in terms of how we think about our sexuality, our gender. In that space, right, it just felt specifically in the context of culture, of language, uh, you did not have to choose. You could just be the entirety of you. And, and I was feeling that, but I could not name it. And it was on the second day when I was co-teaching with Vincent this lesson titled Mental Models. And he would be delivering the lesson in English. He knew all the content. But in, in that space, I was a co-educator, a co-teacher, and I was bringing my own voice in Spanish to that lesson. He started the lesson by introducing in Lakesh, and specifically that poem that was inspired by that concept by Luis Valdez, Tu eres mi otro yo. And I'll recite the poem briefly, that's okay. Please. Uh, please. Okay, yeah. So, uh, tu eres mi otro yo, you are my other me. Si te hago daño a ti, if I do harm to you, me hago daño a mí mismo. I do harm to myself. Si te amo y respeto yo, if I love you and respect you, me amo y respeto a mí mismo. I love and respect myself. There was just something so profound in hearing that poem spoken by this group of 40 students, some of them speaking Spanish uh, as I speak Spanish because I grew up with Spanish. Yeah. Some of them struggling to speak Spanish. Some of them speaking English like I do with an accent, right? And, and some of them speaking English, you know, just flawlessly because that's what they speak. They speak, they speak English and, and, and they are still part of our community. Yeah. But just they're going back and forth between these, these languages and, and just all coming together, like it just internally, I just felt a complete sense of relief. Yeah. And Vincent, right, the, the poem concludes. And mind you, at that time, that poem had been banned in the state of Arizona, right? There's this huge nativist movement that's uh, really destroying the, a, a very successful ethnic studies, Chicano studies program, right, by the Maestros yes. of Talks in Arizona. Yes. There's that beautiful documentary, Precious yes. uh, Knowledge. And in my mind, I know about this. And, you know, the, like, like us, this poem has been banned, has been socially, politically, legislatively made forbidden, right? Yes. Just, just like me as, as an undocumented person. And yes. yet here we are proclaiming it. And here we are with our voices saying, we're enough, we feel whole, we're good. Uh, we're worthy, uh, we're free. And, you know, later that night, I remember sharing with a few of the other camp staff, you know, this is the first time since since I arrived in this country that I feel free. Oh. And that moment right there, I knew this is what I want to do. Yeah. Right? I, I have no idea if I'll ever be able to teach in high school the way I wanted to teach because yeah. DACA didn't exist at the time. It was like, but this is the type of educational spaces that I that I aspire to create. And to me, it was so clear in that moment that it's not, Storytellers for Change was not going to be about storytelling, like telling perfect, inspiring stories. It was mm -hmm. going to be about creating spaces and community spaces where storytellers, the person, right, would be centered. Yeah. And we could engage in a process that would allow us to feel whole, well, and in just relationship with ourselves and each other. That's what I was really really sure of after that experience that all this time that I had been working to craft the perfect dreamer story mm -hmm. I was actually harming myself yes because it's unrealistic like I in the public eye I have to be flawless courageous humble ready and willing to pledge allegiance to a country that has terrorized me and my family I have to be continuously trying to be perfect 
and, and there's no room for, for flaw. Oh right? my gosh, yeah. you just hit it to the, that. You and to me, that. that's that, that story, like I, I was like, this is, I've been doing it all wrong. Right? Yeah. I've been working on crafting this, this narrative that's not only false, but it's also perpetuating damage because it's saying that only a group of us is deserving and the yeah. rest of us is not. So it's just playing into the good old, pull yourself by the bootstraps, meritocratic, yeah. uh, you know, single hero type of story that individualistic framework that that just is going to cause more harm so yeah. so to me it's like you know what like we need to we need to take a step back we need to re-engage with the process um and 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 from their own right like i mean some some of our early work at storytellers for change was about working specifically with students on telling asset-based stories when they would apply to scholarships or when they would apply uh to to college why because I know from personal experience that some of the harm that I experienced in higher education and pursuing higher education was from the trauma that I had to live and live again as I was trying to prove myself worthy of support. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, if the institution was not going to uh, really lead the way by creating a more, more holistic, restorative healing processes for us to be able to access the institution, then I had to work on offering uh, our community tools to be able to engage in storytelling in a way uh, that would be affirming for them while also allowing them to access these spaces where we need representation. I think this goes back to, to the story of my counselor and just fundamentally my realization that stories can shape how we treat each other fundamentally. So stories stories can hurt, stories can heal. And, and I've, I have this awareness at this point. I've also been uh, on, on, on this journey of, of truly self-discovery, but also community discovery around the practice of storytelling. And, and particularly from a place of advocacy, from a place of resistance, from, from a place of survival as well. And I think sort of there's, there's that fact of just essentially my, my personal lived experience. But at this point, because of my academic background in school, around political science and sociology and education, I'm also, I've gained now at this point, all these different theoretical frameworks and, and, and academic tools that have actually gotten me just very like intellectually interested in narrative, right? So narrative inquiry, mm. public narrative, different participatory engagement methodologies that, that really lean heavily on, on dialogue, on storytelling. So I, I, I'm just gaining all these tools here. Mm -hmm. And I just have a more intricate understanding at this point, too, of just the, the history of, of, of systemic inequity and oppression in, in the U.S. specifically because of this context, but the world more at large. And, and I see narrative as, as, as key to the oppressive system, but also narrative as key to how do we liberate ourselves. And I know I want to continue pursuing that intellectually. But I think, <laughs> to be honest, um, th those two things are true. And those two things could have taken me in all kinds of directions to work for all kinds of different organizations mm -hmm. and or pursue grad school. Well, the, the reality is that the third factor is, I'm still undocumented, it's 2010, the Dream Act just failed, and DACA is nowhere to be seen. Uh, I mean, it, it was not even part of our vocabulary in the immigrant rights community. I am in a very tough place 
financially, but also in the, in the context of uh, I'm angry with higher education, so I don't really want to pursue uh, more school. When, when you're undocumented, right, prior to DACA, and this is still the, definitely the case for those who cannot qualify for DACA, and you are pursuing college, you're excited that you're there, you're, you, in some ways you feel like, like this is incredible, I'm here, and at the same time you are dreading every day that goes by because you see graduation, and at the end of the graduation, what happens next, right? right. It's like, right. it's what uh, Dr. Uh, Roberto Gonzalez calls life's, life's in limbo, right? Like you, you're, mm-hmm. you're living in this in-between space continuously of not knowing what's going to happen. I began to explore opportunities and I found entrepreneurship could be an option. It essentially came to me from just knowing that I had met other people who were undocumented who had businesses and I just got really curious about it. I began to pursue that. Sounds maybe too strong, but I, I did, I, I was in fact forced. Like I felt forced to have to figure out how do I make this lift experience and this passion, intellectual passion, you know, combined with my desire to serve my community all fit in the context of a business. And that's a whole different story because that was like a, a lot of work and a lot of, you know, ups and downs. But when I had to, when I realized I'm going to have to create my own vision around an, an organization or, an, 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 or a consulting business, that's when I began to conceptualize the storytellers for change. And that unto itself was like a, a five-year journey even to just fully arrive at the name Storytellers for Change. I remember doing a research project for one of my education classes on storytelling, but back then it was really hard to find other information about it. Mm. But I just kept thinking, and I even gave a presentation to it. And and my professor was like, yeah, you know, there's some new emerging brain research on it, but it was so new. Like even though stories have been fundamental. And the thing that actually got me interested in storytelling and the power of storytelling, a Native American novelist. Have you ever read uh, Leslie Marmon Silco? I have Um, not. Ceremony is her book that is healing in the power of story to heal. One of her other ones, I'm trying to remember, she writes so beautifully. She's a MacArthur genius, but also, oh my God, talk about pain and things like ceremony is specifically, it's more about narrative and storytelling and the essential part of power to heal through storytelling. I'm just so there with you about about the power of storytelling, The because I'm a fundamental believer in the power of storytelling for all that you are describing. What a powerful story. It's so important for listeners that do not fully believe their leaders. Do you have to be fearless to do any of this kind of work? That's my question. Yeah, that's that's a good question. And, and the answer is, you know, for me, at least, is that fear has always been there. I think the, the degree to which that fear controls me, drives me, you know, it ha- has always been different or whether it's the, the primary emotion that I'm feeling, uh, but it's always been there. And and I remember uh, recently I've been doing some writing about these. Um, so, so I was talking a lot about joy and healing earlier, right? And um one thing that I, that I, so you may know, like, you know, in the undocumented community, especially the, the, the Jude immigrant dreamer community, um, one of the chants that would be used oftentimes is undocumented and unafraid, right? Uh, and unapologetic, sometimes uh, people would, would add to that. And I remember at the University of Washington, one of the, one of the significant efforts that, that I was able to participate in was the, the development of, at the time, uh, what, what was an underground support group for undocumented students. Um, and now the group, um, it has, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's more uh, out, right? It, it has institutional support. You know, there, there's so much that has happened at universities since then. 
uh, and I and I credit uh, specifically um, a, a few, not only the students, of course, because they're the ones who did this work, but institutionally within the institution, uh, Magdalena Fonseca, who is the Ethnocultural Center now, and uh, Roberto Gonzalez, who used to be a professor there and now is uh, a professor at Harvard. And this, this group was called the Purple Group. Uh, so we picked an ambiguous name so that nobody would know. It's like if people was like, oh, I have to go to the purple group. Nobody knew what that was. We knew it's like that's where the undocumented kids go. And uh, Dr. Dr. Gonzalez would meet with us. He would buy us pupusas uh, or some other food, and we would just sit down and 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 meet and talk. And I remember the first yeah. time I showed up to one of those meetings. I, I saw some people that I had no, no idea that they were undocumented. Everybody knew I was undocumented yeah. because I, I was I was everywhere telling everyone that would listen, I'm undocumented and you're going to see me and yeah. you're going to hear me. And there's yeah. more of us yeah. uh, here. Uh, I, I just I, I, I took on, on, on that particular approach to, to, to my activism, but not everyone else did. And I, and I didn't believe everybody had to choose that. Um, but I remember in that space, we had some intense conversations about what this group should be for uh, and about, right? And, and I remember some of us in the space wanted the group to be more outspoken, more of an activist group. Uh, and there were others who were like, you know, this is the first time I, I have a space like this. I don't want to be out. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about my safety. I'm thinking about my friends. Like I have friends, like, I, like people don't know this about me. Mm-hmm. And in one of those particular, uh, after one of those particular meetings, I remember walking with one of these friends who, uh, I remember going in there and, and I looked at her and I was like, I didn't know you were undocumented. Like, I didn't say that, but I was like, wow, like, I mean, this is, um, this is cool. Um, and uh, I'm walking with her out of, out of the, the, the School of Social Work building where we were meeting at the time. And, and she's, we, we had just had one of these conversations about what the purpose of the group should be. And she's like, you know, Luis, you, you can say those words undocumented and unafraid, but some of us are actually afraid. Um, and I, I just, I don't know that I want this group to be um, about us uh, going out there and, and, and proving to the world, right, that, that we're fearless, uh, yeah. when in fact I am afraid. And, mm-hmm. and, and as soon as she said that, you know, to be honest, I, what I immediately felt is she's right. Because I do say those words, but I am afraid. Yeah. And I have no space to, to name those fears. And, and, and that's part of the, again, the harm of, 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 of the dreamer narrative early on. I think the dreamer movement has, has evolved so much since then. Uh, and, and it's been stored by amazing young people who are extremely critical and, and really uh, working to... To, to not only advocate for immigrant rights, right, but for Black Lives Matter and yes. for, and, and really the intersectionality that exists within, within the movement, right? Like, I think there's been a lot of uh, amazing progress since then. But at that moment, I really felt, uh, my, my friend is right. Um, I, I have no space to do this. And actually in public, I cannot show fear, right? I have to, politically, it, it, it does not serve us to show that we're afraid. And and, and something just felt wrong about that again, right? So I'm like going through this process of like battling with my own politics uh, at, at that moment. Um, and, and, and again, just this, this obsession in, in American culture with like the, 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 the flawless, courageous uh, leader, right? That, that doesn't fear anything, that yeah. that's perfect. You know, so it, 
there's a lot of harm that happens in in, yeah. in 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 that space and not having and honestly let me tie this to another huge issue that i think it's not just something that we need to further address in, in the context of uh, the latinx community and the context of uh leadership and and definitely within the immigrant community coming to color uh but mental health oh yes right yeah. like we just need spaces where we can yes we need spaces where we get to talk with professional Yes. Uh, mental health counselors, but also we just need spaces where we destigmatize talking yeah. about our our difficulties, our challenges, like quote unquote, like flawless leadership. Yep. It's a fallacy, right? Like it, yeah. it's just, we, we are all vulnerable. We all have flaws. We all need to grow in different ways. And if we don't create critical spaces where we get to do that with each other in our movements, in our organizations, then if you're a leader, especially like a manager and, and people within your organization feel afraid of checking in with you about oh, yeah. their own doubts or perhaps what they perceive to be you as a leader or you as a manager, uh, what may, you may be missing, then you have an organization that's going to stagnate culturally, uh, strategically, tactically, like it's just, it's not going to happen. And that happens to movements too. So for me, that, that was a, a valuable lesson. And not to say that I get this right all the time, um, because I don't, uh, but that's part of the point, isn't it, right? That, that I'm, I'm not going to get it right all the time and that I need spaces like this one, for example, to like check in, reflect with you, be vulnerable and say, you know, this is, this is, these are all the times that I, that I, that I messed up, that I, that I didn't get it right, but this is what it taught me, right? That's how I arrived at Storytellers for Change, by spending six years telling a story that hurt me and I believe ultimately did cause harm to our to our movement, um, and and I'm accountable for that. I have to own that. I have to process that, and then I have to work to make amends. And and how do I go about doing that? Uh, and that's been part of my journey since then. I don't think I have met anyone, and I definitely don't see myself as perfect or floodless. I don't know why we expect, and that's the thing, and that's why leadership. And then once you become, and then put that intersection of Latin leadership becomes even lonelier because they expect you, they, they put you in this pedestal. You are there, you can make mistakes, you can scream, you can get angry, you can get sad, you can have, you can be depressed <laughs> and you can complain. You have to be there and it's exhausting. And, and you have to make all these favors for people. And, and it's, it is exhausting. I love that you brought the, the mistake of doing that, trying to be happy all the time one and and the mistake of always looking perfect and the mistake of trying to make yourself look white the mistake of what it is to be a leader there's many ways and and again i thank you luis for making this space because this is the attempt to show our latinx community that we're more than one box of leadership. We have many ways of being leaders and we have many ways of arriving here. So that's really important. I'm so grateful that you brought that and you as a man bringing this that we don't have to be perfect and you don't have to be fearless or floodless to be a leader. In fact, I think I think what you're sharing, part of your story that, that I really am admiring in a way and is such an important aspect of effective leadership is your vulnerability because that's such an important aspect of effective leadership. So Luis, when did you accept the role of a leader? Peter and I continue to struggle to accept the 
label or the word leader? I, I continue to, to struggle with the word leadership uh, in, in a good way. I, I think we should struggle with the word leadership uh, because historically speaking, there's, uh, it's not necessarily a word that always inspires images uh, that are that give us hope or or that give us healing or restoration or justice. There, there are certainly examples I think uh, that that do that, but there's also uh, examples of leadership and how we experience leadership, especially in a society where again you know the where xenophobia is alive and well, where sexism is alive and well, where processes of colonization are alive and well, right? Like within those structures. Um, when you think about positional power uh, and access to resources and who gets to be a leader within those institutions and those places, there's lots to be struggled with. So uh, that I just want to contextualize what I mean by that. Uh, so yes, absolutely. I, I, I do believe in, in, in my leadership. I do believe that I'm a leader and, and I struggle with that concept. And I think for me to answer your question, the first one about when I came into my leadership, I, it was always clear to me that part of my identity is educator, right? Um, because of what I explained earlier in terms of my family background mm -hmm. and, and my desire to be an educator. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and then understanding that educators can be leaders, right? Um, that, that was part of that journey. Uh, but honestly, it, to me, what was astonishing. So at the University of Washington, what I began to realize is that by one, uh, exercising uh, the, my, my voice, essentially, right, by raising my hand uh, and by being present, I was a leader, or, or at least people perceived me to be a leader. Um, right. I, right. And I didn't. Uh, yeah. and, and the thing is that I was just essentially following uh, my heart and my stomach to all kinds of different meetings at the University of Washington, because again, I, I'm facing housing insecurity, I'm hungry, I'm a college kid, and I'm hungry for food, literally because I'm starving, but I'm also hungry for knowledge and change in the context of the University of Washington. I was, at, at this point, is you know, two and a half years into the university, I'm done with not being seen. I'm done with having that get out of, you know, my office moment, which I had with my counselor, but I also had several times with people at the University of Washington. And I wanted to be seen. So I would show up. And one particular day, one administrator pulled me to the side and asked me if I would ever be interested in running for student government. And it just like blew me away because I was like, uh, like, no, that because I show up at all these things, you suddenly want me to run for student government. Like it made no sense to me. I was like, what, what could possibly qualify me? But then I actually started thinking a little bit about it, not, not the running for student government because uh, as an undocumented person, I would not have been able uh, to do that. But the, the thought of presence uh, and, and the thought of, of showing up Mm -hmm. and raising my hand stuck with me and how for this particular administrator that had made me uh, at least in his eyes a leader mm -hmm. right um, and, and in the context you know something that, that Tanya mentioned earlier about the pressure that, that sometimes we feel when we um, are the quote-unquote only ones right and of yeah. course we're never really the only ones but sometimes in represent 
from a representational perspective, right? You're showing up in a space and you're the only person with an accent, the only person of color, the only person that holds a specific identity. People look at you uh, with expectations. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and that can feel uh, very, very heavy. Uh, and also dangerously, uh, it can be very seductive as okay. in suddenly you start thinking, oh, I am the leader, I, I, I am the voice. Uh, and, you know, again, in, in, in full transparency, there were moments where I felt that odd combination of just feeling extremely empowered uh, mm-hmm. to, and, 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 and I would argue I was advocating on behalf of our community, but to a point where maybe I was, my, my ego was arriving at a place that I would say was unhealthy. And uh, balancing that uh, was a struggle. And, and, and I think, you know, once I just, you know, I, I cannot say like there was a specific moment after that conversation with that administrator, but it just kept happening more, right? More people kept saying, uh, Luis is a leader, right? Like, because mm-hmm. Luis is showing up and Luis is speaking and Luis is doing these things. And, and for me, you know, the, the struggle came really at that place where I, I, I realized I had to be more critical than about what it meant for me to be in a, in, in a position of leadership. Mm. And uh, even though I couldn't um, run for student government, I, I got very involved with other committees and other structures, and I began to seek out actual leadership positions. But I think one of the most important things that I did, for example, when I, when I was, uh, essentially, I was supposed to be the president of the Latinx Student Union. By default, nobody elected me to the position. Uh, what happened is every member of the Latinx Student Union at the University of Washington had graduated. I was the only member left. <laughs> so by default, I, I, I had to choose to whether or not I would keep this organization alive or if it would go away. Oh. And, and I, the organization um, is the reason why I believe I stayed at the university uh, because those Latinx students that started that organization um, helped me to understand that I had a place in, in, in that university. And the work that they were doing to organize an educational conference, the Jackie Mapali, to me felt like one of the most inspiring things that I had experienced and in the context of the University of Washington period, like no other class, no other program, nothing else, but these group of students going back to the Yakima Valley to uh, organize uh, a leadership and education conference for students, nothing else was most inspiring to me. Um, So I decided I'm gonna keep this organization alive, but I'm not going to be the president of it. Uh So I went and recruited freshmen and sophomores and juniors and we create a flat structure, right? Wow. Uh, we said, everybody's going to be a co-chair here. You know, just like I, I, I had influence in the group because I was sort of bringing everyone together, but I was very committed to building capacity. Is, is We are going to just create a structure where we are going to work together. And you may remember, Peter, that that was exactly the same structure that we brought. That's actually how I met Jose. Uh, Vasquez. And that this is the same structure that we brought to Alianza from the beginning. It's like we wanted a co-chair uh, structure. We wanted co-leadership. And, and I think at that particular moment in that role, that's where I was able to find, I think, my leadership that to this day I, I continue to exercise, which is just this belief in, in co-creation and, and, and co-leadership, shared leadership. Um, and and, and, and from, from running a student organization to you know, now, now running, uh, you know, 
this consulting organization. And as you've been doing that work to encourage youth to step into leadership, what have you learned about how, what are some of those challenges or ways of encouraging? Is there anything that you would like to say to youth leaders or that you typically do to encourage youth to step into their leadership? Yeah, I would say three things. Yeah. Um, the, the first one is take time to to know yourself and to love yourself. Mm. Uh, I think first, first and foremost, and within that, just to give like a very specific practice, you know, it's just affirm yourself. Um, yeah. You know, look at your surroundings and and find the the things that give you nourishment, that give yeah. you healing, that give you joy, get you excited, and get curious about those things. Because I I think really you know so so often, and this is specifically true. I think in just to frame it specifically around the Latinx experience mm-hmm. in in the U.S. context, so much around our identity continues to be framed from a deficit-based perspective, meaning here are all the things that you don't have, here are all the ways your family has struggled, here's all the ways your community is struggling, here are all the ways you continue to not thrive as a community. And, and, and not to say that there are not positive messages out there, there definitely are, but I would argue that the mainstream narrative continues to be deficit-based, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and within that context then, I think it's not only an act of resistance, but it's an act of freedom to actually actively look, to know yourself and affirm yourself in a way that uh, shines your strengths, right? So when somebody remarks, you know, or makes fun of aspects of our culture, we should look at them and, 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 and love them. I mean, it's it's just, it's honestly like as, as, as cliche as people making fun of you because you eat beans. Beans are a sacred plant that for, since time immemorial, have brought nourishment to our people and all kinds of people actually yeah. it's not just yeah. exclusive to to our particular um and i'm just now thinking very specifically like mexica culture but in any case you know it's just i, I for a long time you know just hated that notion of just being called a beaner like and mm-hmm. and it did happen to me a couple of times in high yeah. school it's kind of like one of those things that like that's even like so like 80s or like i don't know it like, was it but, was it was very common in the 80s i got i got that in, the, in yakima Right. Yeah, there you go. And, and and to me, it's like, and somehow that still has like made its way to like Roswell High School in Seattle, like in yeah. early 2000s. And and I just like hating the idea of being called beaner, right? Like, I'm like why? And, and like, yeah, sometimes like beans can be a little stinky. And like, I don't know, like <laughs> something about it just was like, they're delicious. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and people want to eat them. And then like, but what's the history behind it? I never understood the history. Yeah. And once I understood the history, I, I know what you're trying to do here is hurt me. But like, yeah, like we are like we are keepers of this plant our ancestors mm. did this uh, and it just completely like reframes it for you and then that that word that expression cannot harm you anymore and i think when you start getting curious to know yourself like you you find those things the, the second one so first like get to know yourself and, and affirm yourself the second one is from that place of understanding awareness seek what you want and what I mean by that, in terms of what you want, is that in the Latinx community, so much of how we frame our, our life choices fundamentally, I think, come from a place of, of sacrifice, right? Like our fathers sacrificed themselves for us, I'm going to sacrifice myself for them. And then, um, you know, I have to sacrifice myself for my kids. And then definitely, in, in my opinion, a, a heavy Catholic influence within culturally, within how that's framed for us. I think there's something there that we as a community, I myself individually, we have to really think about this carefully. Like, what does it mean to just live 
continuously in a culture of sacrifice mm-hmm. and what that does to our bodies, what that does to our relationships, what that does to our mental health, what that does yeah. to how we show up for each other and with ourselves and even in our social movements. Um, I think there's something there that we need to interrogate. So when you, when, when you're seeking what you want, just differentiating what we may feel are duties to our family and to our community, which can be things that, that, that we want can still come from a, from, from right. a, you want this. I wonder how often we also confuse what we want with what we feel obligated to do. And I think for me, truly pursuing the things that I, I, I've had a few moments where I feel like I've been able to pursue truly what I want. And and they have served me well because I think they've allowed me to actually in fact be a better service to my family because I'm in a better place. Right. I feel more whole as right. a person, and then that then allows me to to just be better overall. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And I think the last one is like, what are you gonna say? Which is all of us, and this is where the story piece comes in. What do you wanna say in this world? Understanding that your words are gonna stay. Uh, with with others and, and we don't even have to think about like huge speeches like literally just think about how your words stay with your siblings with your parents with your best friends I mean to this I, I can close my eyes and think about some people that I'm pretty sure I'll never see in my life again because they were just we crossed paths in childhood or because their relatives that have passed away and their words are with me so what are you gonna say to others and and for me it's fundamentally about love it's about hope uh it's about you know sort of that critical hope component to me it's so important here it's yeah we can we can be critical of each other right we can we can be critical of the world but we need to be hopeful also about what's possible in it. And, and I think if you move towards too, too, too far towards any one of those directions, you don't, you don't find that balance. I think if, if you move too, more, too much towards the place of, of just criticality, you mm-hmm. end up looking at everything through uh, a, a very gloomy lens. Uh, a deficit to, lens. Yeah, a deficit lens. Right. But also a, a place that's completely full of just uh despair right like yeah. it's just not like everything is, is broken it's not possible and you may still fight against it the, the hopeful place right it's like if you move too much in that direction you may also find yourself just hoping right like here yeah. we are hoping 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 uh so it's like you need to balance those two and i think that comes to how we think about um our, our own families and relationships but also more largely the world so i feel like those are three questions three practice like how knowing yourself affirming yourself uh, exploring what you want right from a place of how how can i feel whole as a person yeah. so i can be better overall uh and just be mindful of your words they they can live for a long time Right. And that's where I think this ties in with what you the story you were sharing earlier, because I agree with you. I mean, so much of and and we especially through this pandemic, I think, you know, young people are feeling it more than than older folks are like myself with some of the anger I see sometimes that people haven't processed to they are showing up in spaces wanting to see positive change, but how they're expressing it. It's kind of like the way that you, I think your story about when you were giving that talk with educators, a room full of white educators, kind of can be applied in the same way in other spaces for youth as an example of the importance of doing that kind of work for ourselves, right? Yeah, um, yeah that's awesome. Um, so Luis, so thank you so much for your time, for sharing more of your stories 
um, your vulnerability. It's just it's continued to be breathtaking. Uh, and thank you for for letting us share that with, with others through Adelante Leadership. Peter, Tanya, thank you for inviting me. I hope today's episode with Luis Ortega inspired you to step into your Latin leadership and connect the power of your story. Please join us for pilot episode part two, where Tanya and I discuss why Adelante Leadership. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Adelante Leadership, changing the leadership narrative together one story at a time. Please visit our site of Adelante Leadership on Facebook and Instagram to send your ideas and share with other Latina friends and family who share the vision of a stronger and more united community, making the world a better place.